John the Baptist did such a good job at preparing people for Jesus that today, when we read through our New Testaments, I think that we fail to see just how popular he was. Historical evidence suggests that John the Baptist was, in fact, incredibly popular in Israel. He came to the people of God preaching a message that truly won their hearts. We heard just a little bit about John the Baptist as we just finished working through the prologue of John. But now it's time to get more of a scoop on this famous prophet to see if he has anything to offer for us today. Our text today is primarily concerned with him and he will come up often throughout the book of John. Would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 1 verses 19 through 28. John chapter 1 verses 19 through 28. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John 1, 19-28, Thus saith the Lord. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, if you've ever wondered why we call the prophet John, John the Baptist, hopefully you kind of get a taste of that. Now, John was sent to Israel before Christ began his ministry to preach a gospel message and to institute a kind of baptism. He came baptizing. And so we refer to him as John the Baptizer or more commonly John the Baptist. And so leave it to the religious bureaucrats of his day to be concerned that there's a man baptizing without a permit. The Jewish establishment uh, sent representatives, some of them Pharisees, some of them Levites and priests, to investigate this celebrity vagabond, if you will. Now, to some degree, we can at least be a little sympathetic as to why they would want to check uh, John out, check his message out. Because it's hard for us to see, but what John was doing was actually pretty scandalous. He was administering baptism to Jews. Now, what's so scandalous about that? Well, first, what John was doing was instituting a new form of baptism. Believe it or not, there already was a kind of baptism existing in the Jewish life. Um, A more broad term for baptism, you could call it a ceremonial washing, right? When you take a shower, that's not a baptism. Uh, But when you're washed in the context of religious ceremony, then that becomes a form of baptism. And Jewish people had ceremonial washings. They had a kind of baptism. But one of the things that was common among all of them is that a person would baptize themselves. 
You were your own baptizer. You would take your own bath, if you will. And so here comes John usurping that authority and being the actual one to administer baptism. He is the one baptizing people. They are not baptizing themselves. So there, he was sort of messing with the form of things, if you will. But what was perhaps even more scandalous than sort of messing with the form and the tradition was the fact that he was baptizing Jews. You see, most, there was a few exceptions to this, but most of the ceremonial washing rituals that took place among the Jewish people were only for Gentile converts. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert to Judaism, you would have to baptize yourself. Because you see, the way the Jewish people thought, we're the clean ones. We're the Jews. We're the circumcised. We have the law. We're already religiously clean. We're already part of the people of God. It's the Gentiles whom the Old Testament calls unclean. We're already clean. I don't need to be washed. But if an unclean person becomes clean, if an unclean person joins the ranks of the clean, then they need to symbolize that cleansing and they need to get washed. We're already clean. I don't need a washing. The Gentiles, if they want to come over, they need a washing. Yet, John came baptizing the Jews. So that tells us a lot about what John's message was. What was John's message to the chosen people of God? You're unclean. You're not right. You're dirty. And so, when we, when we think of it in these terms, it kind of makes sense that the religious leaders of the day would be like, okay, someone needs to check out on this superstar John who's messing with baptism and calling the Jews unclean. So they send an inquisition. They send uh, a group of delegates to impress upon this man who on earth has the audacity to mess with our traditions and with our message. The only person who could possibly have the kind of audacity to just take that authority upon himself must be one of the three main Old Testament people we've been waiting for. God has promised us three very important people in the Old Testament. And so John must think he's one of those guys because otherwise, if he was just some random guy, there's no way he would take this upon himself. So they see, uh, they present this delegation to John to see, are you one of these Old Testament representatives or are you just a rebellious, rogue usurper? And so they approach themselves and they hint their suspicion is that maybe he's the Messiah. The Jews have been waiting for the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah, for hundreds of years. Maybe John is the Messiah. And John very quickly puts that assumption to death. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now that sentence in verse 20 sounds a little awkward. And in the Greek it is a little awkward. But John wrote it awkwardly on purpose. You see, one of the ways that you can emphasize a point in Greek, we can't really do this so much in English, but in Greek you can move your words around more freely. And sometimes you would move words around to emphasize a subject more. And so it's a very awkward Greek phrase and it's hard to translate into English, which is why it reads so awkwardly. But the general gist is this. John is being very emphatic, very bold, very unapologetic, no ambiguity at all. I am not the Christ. Get this through your heads. I am not the Messiah. 
The way our English Bible reads, it's interesting to me, is it essentially saying that this is not John's admission, it's his assertion, right? The word admission has a negative connotation to it. If I get you to admit something, the implication is you were trying to hide it and I got it out of you. Okay, I admit, I admit. I don't deny it. That wasn't what happened to John. It wasn't like he was pretending to be the Christ and this, this group got him to deny. Okay, fine, fine, I'm not the Christ. He didn't deny it. This wasn't an admission. This was an assertion. This has been my entire message the whole time. This, I'm not the Christ. So it's really important. John is emphasizing here, he's not the Messiah. Okay, so we checked that off the box. So our, our delegates now need to move on to who's another person that we've been waiting for. And their guess is Elijah. Their guess is Elijah. Now, why would they think that John is an Old Testament prophet named Elijah? Well, let's look at that. Keep your marker here in John, but turn to Malachi chapter 4. Now, sometimes it's hard to find minor prophets, but Malachi for us is easy because it's the last book of the Old Testament. So just go to the very beginning of the New Testament and then go back to Malachi. And we'll be in the very last chapter of the last book and even in the last paragraph of the last chapter of the last book. Malachi chapter 4, reading 1 through 5. All of chapter 4, actually. Listen to this prophecy. Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, we don't have time to preach every element of this text and talk about how it all fits in, but the general gist I want you to see is clearly the Old Testament prophesied that before the day of the Lord comes, before this great day of salvation and vindication and judgment, before that day comes, Elijah would return. And Elijah would return to have some kind of restoration ministry to restore the people of Israel back to themselves and back to God. Keep in mind that John's prophetic message, John the Baptist, it marked the end of 400, over 400 years of divine silence. Before John shows up on the scene, the people of God had not heard from God in a very long time. And this was one of the last prophecies to be made. This was a prophecy ringing in the ears throughout generations, waiting for this promised day of vindication and salvation, waiting for Elijah to show up so that we know the Son of Righteousness is on the horizon. And so this is the prophecy that brings up their question. Before the advent of God's Son, we have to have Elijah. And so back in John 1, that is the question they ask. Turn back to John chapter 1 and look at verse 21 with me. It 
And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Let's stop there. John's answer is no. I'm not Elijah. Now, believe it or not, if you were to ask the question more broadly, is John Elijah? The answer to that question is actually kind of complicated. And you say, what's so complicated about it? He says, I am not. That's about as simple as an answer can possibly be. The reason it's complicated is because Jesus contradicts John's message. You don't have to turn there. I want you to read on the screen with me from Matthew 11. Jesus speaking to his disciples because they asked him about who John was. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So is John Elijah or is he not? John says no. Jesus says yes. Now, how do we square this circle? How do we harmonize this, right? Well, first, I think before we can seek a plan of harmonization, we need to let the rest of Scripture speak into this so we know exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Because what Jesus is trying to say is more nuanced than we think. And what I believe Jesus is not saying is that John is literally Elijah in the sense that they are the same human being. They have the same DNA. That Elijah just came back reincarnated in Elizabeth's womb. I don't think Jesus is affirming that. They are not the same person. What Jesus is affirming, though, is that John came to play the role that Elijah played. He came to do what the prophecy said the new Elijah would do. So Jesus is affirming that John is the fulfillment of Malachi 5. He is the Elijah to come. But that's not quite the same thing as saying that they are literally the same human being. And you want to know, well, where are you getting that from the text? Well, I want to first point out that notice what Jesus says is Jesus is clearly speaking in very deep spiritual terms because he he has to tell them if you're willing to accept this and let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Both of those little sandwiches are Jesus' way of saying this is sort of mysterious. This is, this is a hard teaching to accept. So there's, there's something underneath the surface here that's a little bit more complicated than just, yeah, he's Elijah. No, there's something more complicated here. And I think the way we can understand, well, what is that that's underneath the surface is by looking at what the angel who prophesied John's birth said about John to his father. So keep your marker in John and now turn to Luke chapter 1. Just one book before John, Luke chapter 1. I think this is really going to clear things up for us. Just letting scripture interpret scripture for us. Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 11. So Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is a priest. And he goes into the temple to offer incense to God. And then something amazing happens to him while he's in the temple. He is approached by an angel. And so let's pick up on that in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. 
He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's stop there. So notice that the, the angel prophesies John's birth and what John will do. And he tells us very clearly he's going to do the thing that the Malachi prophecy said he would do. Turn the hearts of sons to their fathers. Turn the hearts of the foolish to the wise to reunite the people to God. So John is coming to do what Elijah was supposed to come and do. So how do we make sense of that? Well, notice John comes what? As Elijah? No, in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the spirit and power of Elijah. And it is in that sense that he is Elijah. He is the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. He came to have the New Testament role that Elijah had in the Old Testament. And he came with the same spirit and power of Elijah. And so it is in that sense that Jesus says, yes, he is Elijah. They're not the same human being. But they have the same role. The one is the fulfillment of the other. So that's Jesus' answer. So now that takes us all the way back. So how do we square this then with John saying no? At the end of the day, John still said no when Jesus says yes. So there are really two ways to understand this. And I don't know which one is true. So I'm just going to let you decide for yourself. One very possible way to understand this is that John was simply wrong. John was simply wrong. And that's not a Bible contradiction. Um, To claim it is, is to confuse what we call the difference between a descriptive text and a prescriptive text. A descriptive text is just a text telling us something happened. It's not affirming it, right? If I were to write a biography on Hitler, I would tell you all the things that Hitler did. Would you then conclude from that that I'm a fan of Hitler? No, I'm just telling you what he did. I'm not endorsing it. All that the Gospel of John is telling us is what John said. It's not endorsing it, necessarily. So there's no Bible contradiction if John is wrong. It's very likely, one of the things you're going to learn about John is he's extremely humble. Extremely humble. It might just be the case that John is so humble that he even failed to grasp the significance of his own ministry and purpose. So one answer is that John was wrong. He didn't realize that he actually was the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. So that's a possible answer. Another possible answer, this is the one that I personally gravitate to just a little bit more, is that John uh, took their question as they were asking it more literally than what Jesus meant. Like they were asking, are you literally the person, John the Baptist? And to that, we've already affirmed, no, he's not. He came in the spirit and power, or forgive me, are you literally Elijah? And he said, no. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came as the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy, but he's not that literal person. So John may be saying, no, I'm not literally Elijah. I'm I'm fulfilling his role, but I'm not literally the person. Or he was just wrong. Those are the two options on the table. So I leave them for you to decide. See, it's kind of fun being a Christian. But nonetheless, John's answer is no. Understand that how you will. So we've checked it off. So he's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. In some sense he is. In some sense he's not. So they move to their third guess. And their third guess is that he is the prophet. And that's all that the text gives us. Look at verse 21 with me again. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So now they're asking about some generic, the prophet. 
Who is this the prophet they speak of? Well, what they most likely have in mind was a very famous prophecy that Yahweh made to Moses. And here's what Yahweh told Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So here we have God telling Moses, I'm going to raise up a new Moses. I'm going to raise up a better Moses, a new and better prophet like you. And so clearly the Jews, to their shame, saw this as a separate figure from the Christ. So we've got the Christ, and then we've got the prophet. We know through the apostles that the Christ and this prophet are one and the same. That the Messiah is the new Moses. And we saw that last week. John has already made that connection for us that Jesus is the new Moses. So the Christ is the prophet and John is not the Christ. So what does that also not make him? The prophet. So he, we know he gives a correct answer on this one. Is he the prophet? He answers no. So John is not the Christ. He's not Elijah, maybe qualified. And he is not the prophet. Okay then, so you can sense their frustration. Well then who in the world are you? Are you just some crazy homeless man came in from the desert ruining our way of life and changing our religion? Should you be imprisoned? Do you have any authority at all? And John says, no, I'm not crazy. I'm not just some random guy. I am a significant person. And he does appeal to the Old Testament to show exactly who he is. Look at verses 22 through 23 with me. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So again, John assures them, I'm not just some crazy guy. But I am the one prophesied in the Old Testament to be sent of God to prepare you people to meet the Lord. I've been called of God, prophesied in the Old Testament, to come before the Messiah so that you will be ready. Now, what is he turning to? What Isaiah prophecy is he turning to? Let's read that together as well. Keep your marker here and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I know I'll never be criticized for having too much scripture in a sermon, so I feel safe doing this. Isaiah chapter 40, looking at verses 1 through 5. This is the prophecy that John is saying is about me. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Someone was supposed to come before the glory of the Lord is made visible, which is what we learned last week is known as the Incarnation. Before the incarnation, before God's glory becomes manifested, someone, there needs to be a voice from the wilderness crying out to make a path for the Lord. John is saying, that's my job. 
the glory of the Lord is about to reveal itself to you, but there's difficulty. And so just like Isaiah, Isaiah is using a metaphor here. Uh, if you imagine, we still do this in our day and age, but we just have a lot technology that helps us do it a lot more efficiently. But if you're trying to get from one place to another, if you're trying to get a lot of people from one place to another, that's a difficult travel in most terrains. There's hills, there's rocks. And so you got to do some construction. You got to pave things out. You need some dynamite. You need to blow through some of those hills. You need to make a path so that we can get these people to their destination or we can get the destination to these people. That's the metaphor. We need to build a road. We need to build a highway over this rough terrain. So John the Baptist's job was to come and say, listen, the glory of the Lord is way over there and the people of God are way over here. They're not ready. I'm going to build a highway. I am going to prepare them a smooth transition to meet their God. Isaiah prophesied it. That's me. He tells them, I'm the voice from the wilderness. I'm the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, this is where the text really gets good. Because this delegation, this is not a sufficient answer for them. Apparently, the voice crying out in the wilderness is not a high enough authority to commission new baptisms and call the people of Israel unclean. So, notice what they say in verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? They are unsatisfied. And here's what's so amazing about John the Baptist. Here's our first glimpse into why Jesus thought so highly of John the Baptist. They have questioned John the Baptist's authority. And John knows that this assumption is false. Right? John knows that... He has more authority than anyone involved in this scenario except for Jesus right now. He has more authority than any of the Pharisees, any of the Sadducees, any of the priests, any of this little delegation. His authority is greater. He is a prophesied Old Testament figure whom the Lord with an audible voice called into the wilderness and prepared him personally. He has a divine commission from the mouth of God to do these things. He has more authority than anyone in this desert right now. But guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't leverage it. He doesn't even talk about it. He immediately takes the focus off himself and puts it straight on to Jesus. Look at verses 26 and 27. Remember, they've asked him, what authority are you baptizing? And here's what he says. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He doesn't answer their question. He immediately fixes their gaze back onto the Jesus he's trying to get them to repent and believe in. Rather than argue endlessly, bicker about authority and degrees and PhDs, he does the very thing he was sent to do, to get these people ready for Jesus, to point these people to Jesus. John recognizes that these messengers have already wasted far too much of his time. They have, they have taken up far too much sermon time to bicker about authority. He's ready to get back to the sermon. He's done with their distraction. It's time to stop talking about John and start talking about the one who is so much more holy than John that John's not even worthy to be his slave. Let's talk about that guy. 
I don't want to talk about me anymore. I want to talk about Jesus. Isn't this refreshing, by the way? To see a humble preacher? Isn't it refreshing to see a popular celebrity preacher who wants to focus on Jesus instead of himself? I don't think even I do. I don't do this perfectly. But I can tell you that there are greater offenders than me. In our nation today, celebrity worship has taken over the church. We have allowed narcissistic superstars to become our shepherds. And so because of this, it's amazing how often the sermon portion of a church service is far more about the preacher than it is about Jesus. I must be a glutton for punishment because literally I listen to a lot of these sermons. I cannot tell you how many sermons I've listened to online that are all about the preacher. They share on their huge screens these big professionally made photos of their beautiful, happy family. They wear designer clothing. They brag about how many speaking engagements they've been invited to. They brag about how many people they've baptized. They brag about the reach of their ministry, about how much money they've made. It's always about them, how many people they've counseled, how many marriages they've saved. This is not the case for our first century celebrity, John. John gets tired quickly of being forced to talk about himself. He wants to focus on Jesus. He is an example for me, for our elders, and for every pastor in the world today. The job of the preacher, the job of the minister, is not to make much of himself, but to set the people's eyes on Christ. That's my job. My job is to set our focus and our gaze on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But I think that John the Baptist. Our little introduction to John's overall message is more relevant just for preachers. I think it's relevant in an important way for every person in this room. He's not just an example of preachers, but his actual message is relevant for us today. The call from the wilderness echoes from the pages of Scripture into every generation and fills every church even to this day. John the Baptist continues to cry out to us all, make straight a highway for the Lord. You see, John knew that the Messiah was in Israel and was about to begin his ministry. And so he was calling people, he was preparing people to meet the Lord. He knew that they were going to meet Jesus soon. And he knew that they weren't ready to meet Jesus soon. Jesus is coming and you're not ready. He's preparing them to meet the Lord. And how did he do that? What was his message? How, what was the most important thing a person could do before they met Jesus? Well, according to our text here, the answer to that question is baptism. John came to baptize with water. That's what he says. But we know what baptism means for John because again, we can go to other scriptures, to the synoptic gospels to see what did this baptism mean for these people. And we see in texts like Luke chapter 3 that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When you are baptized, it is your call to repent. It is God's promise to you. In baptism is a divine promise that if you repent of your sins, they will be forgiven. John came to preach repentance. And that's exactly how Matthew summarizes it. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For John, his baptism was a symbol of being washed, being forgiven, being cleansed by Jesus through repentance. Baptism was his sign, but the substance of baptism is salvation through repentance. That's the promise. That's what the sign points us to. And it reminds us every day of our lives, repent, turn to Christ, repent, turn to Christ. John's message was a call to repentance, a call to be washed clean through repentance and faith. He prepared the Jews for Christ by telling them that they were unclean, that they needed to be cleansed by turning from sin and turning to Christ. Now, why do I say this message is so relevant for us today? Well, because keep in mind, John prepared them for a first advent, but there's another advent coming. There's a second advent coming. Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's why we need to hear John's call again. We need to hear this question, which is, are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready to meet the Lord? I ask you, in the spirit of John the Baptist, as an individual, I'm not asking about your heritage or your Christian tradition or whatever faith you grew up in or what your parents believe. I'm asking you as individuals, are you ready to meet Jesus? It's good for all of us to engage from time to time in inward self-reflection. Because as humans, it becomes very easy to put confidence in outward things that don't actually guarantee our salvation. That's what the Jews were doing. They assumed they were clean. Because after all, we're the Jews. We're circumcised. We're the people of God. We got the law. We're good to go. And then John came and told them to stop resting in those things. Stop trusting in those things. Trust in Christ. Being Jewish won't save you. Being circumcised won't save you. Christ will save you. They needed forgiveness. They needed transformation. They needed to repent. And like them, it's easy sometimes for us to rest on the outward things. Maybe you feel really good about your eternal destiny because after all, you've been a faithful churchgoer your entire life. And you know what? I say praise God for that. Praise God. Don't stop. Continue to be a faithful churchgoer for your entire life, please. But I have to remind you of the unfortunate reality that hell will be filled with people who went to church. Maybe you, you feel safe and comfortable because you've just always been a Christian. Your parents were Christians. You were raised Christian. I mean, that's just, that's just who we are. But I have to tell you that having a Christian upbringing does not save you. Maybe your hope is in your baptism. I was baptized. I'm good to go. Now, again, that's amazing that you were baptized. Praise God. But again, the sad reality is that hell will be filled with baptized people. Baptism, church attendance, Christian upbringing, these are not things that in and of themselves prepare you to meet the Lord. Of course, the Lord uses these things to sanctify us, to change us. I'm not saying they're useless. I'm not saying God has no purpose for these things or that they're bad things. They're not. But they're not ultimately things you can put your ultimate hope and trust in. They might be things that God uses in mighty ways, but they are not what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. Faith in Christ is what prepares you to meet him on judgment day. So I firmly believe that if John were here today, he would tell you that what you need is the substance or the promise of baptism. What you need is faith and the promises that God has made to you in your baptism. 
You need a true and full baptism, which means that you have a sincere faith and genuine repentance. In short, I think John would tell you, you need to come to Christ. You need to believe that you have sinned against a holy God and that Jesus came to die to save you of your sins. So I ask everyone in this room, do you believe that? And if not, will you believe that? Will you repent? Will you turn from yourself? Will you turn away from your sins and trust wholly in Christ? Come to Christ today by faith. Trust in Him for forgiveness. Be baptized into Christ. And if you do that, then you're ready to meet the Lord.